Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing Dr. Newfeld's series today, Heaven and Hell. So turning your Bibles to Exodus 33, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Hell and the Nature of God. C.S. Lewis once said about hell, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. Now, in some ways, we might all agree with him. Anyone with the mildest sense of compassion for other human beings is horrified by the idea of hell. For the question that often comes to our minds is this, what kind of a God would send someone there? And today's message is dedicated to answering such a question. If the doctrine of hell is deeply rooted in Scripture, just who is the God of the Bible? And please don't think that I will argue against the love of God. I will, however, argue for all the other attributes of God and not one at the expense of the others. You see, understanding the doctrine of hell begins with understanding who God is revealed to be in the Scriptures. So let's begin with Exodus 32 and 33. The people of Israel have just sinned against God by making a golden calf idol. And it really is amazing. Hardly had the Ten Commandments been given when Israel as a nation were already breaking the first and second command. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make an idol or any physical representation of God. But the Israelites go further. In spite of the fact that they visibly saw God's glorious rescue from Egypt, they're now attempting to change history. They proclaim that these idols and not God were responsible for bringing them out of Egypt. And in response, God stands ready to consume them from the face of the earth. And Moses pleads with God to have mercy. He tells the people of Israel he will go back up Mount Sinai. Exodus 32 verse 30 records Moses as saying, Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. See, at that point, Moses is not sure that God will accept his atonement and forgive. Perhaps all that's left is the utter destruction of the people. You know, this background gives rise to the drama of Exodus 33. God begins by telling Moses he will indeed have mercy on the people. So Exodus 33 verses 3 and 4 says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. And with that, Moses pitched a tent at a distance from the camp of Israel. The tent was called the Tent of Meeting, and it came into being before the tabernacle was built. There, while many of the people watched, Moses would enter the tent and meet with God. And whenever Moses entered into the tent, a pillar of cloud descended on the tent, and the people would rise up, looking at the sight of God among them, meeting with Moses, and they'd worship. For it was there in that tent that Moses would cry out to God for mercy on behalf of a sinful people. See, on one occasion, Moses seems to have left the tent and gone up to Mount Sinai. It must have been a very special occasion. He's again praying for the people. And on this occasion, after so much prayer, the answer finally comes. And it's found in Exodus 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This was a magnificent moment. After a lengthy season of intercession, God finally grants complete forgiveness, and he offers that sought-after mercy. 
Then in that profound and holy moment, Moses, overwhelmed by the graciousness and the kindness of God, asks God something he's never asked before. Verse 18, please show me your glory. See, the majesty of God has overwhelmed Moses. And reveling in both holy fear and delight, he asks one of the most audacious prayer requests in history. He wants to see the glory and majesty of God. And God responds in verses 19 and 20. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. See, standing before God, I think is like standing before a nuclear blast in order to question it. You can't do that. Isaiah 33 verse 14 says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And Psalm 119, 119 to 20 tells us just that. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. And then finally, Isaiah's description of the day of the Lord. That's found in Isaiah 2, 17 to 19. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. You know, some time ago, actor and celebrity Stephen Fry, also known to be an atheist, said that if he ever stood before God, he would say, bone cancer in children, how could you? See, he imagines he would be in a place to grill God for his actions. He would be the judge and God would give account to him. He says he would question God. See, in his mind, there's nothing there that should terrify him. He seems to indicate that his anger against God would put God on his heels. And in truth, I suspect that that's also what a great many others think as well. They've been so used to thinking of God from a perspective that views God more in terms of a very capable human being rather than God. And so Fry seems to be saying, you know, since you're more capable than the rest of us, why haven't you solved the disease questions? And for many, the central and only attribute of God is supposed to be love. To the exclusion of all the other attributes that Moses, the psalmist, Isaiah, and others saw. But Moses, the psalmist, and Isaiah also saw God as holy, as just, as mighty, and righteous. Of course, God is love. But when we think of only one attribute of God at the expense of everything else, that one attribute becomes distorted and looks more like an idol of the mind rather than anything else. So let's move from that to the matter of a God who is intent on bringing honor to his own name. Now we begin that process by reviewing one of the most well-known passages of the Bible. Psalm 23, one to three, it begins what many of us have memorized. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. You know, many stop quoting verse 3 here, but the rest of the verse is very important because it gives us the reason or the justification as to why God is so gracious towards us. So the full verse reads, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. 
And when we end the verse too soon and assume that the only important part is that part where the Lord is our shepherd and that he's watching over us and that he's feeding us, that he's restoring us and that he's leading us into righteousness, well, we also then assume that he's doing all these things for the sake of our name or that he's blessing us only because he's concerned for us. But listen, Psalm 23 is adamant here. God is doing these things not for our sakes, but for his sake. And that's hard for some to comprehend. To say that God is blessing us for the sake of his name is to say that he does it for the sake of his pleasure or for the sake of his reputation or to be highly honored. And immediately we imagine that God is only acting as he does for self-serving reasons. And yet, fascinatingly enough, Psalm 23, verse 3 is not the only place in the Bible where we hear God speaking in this way. Psalm 25, verse 11 contains a prayer of confession to God. It says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Or Psalm 31, verse 3 says, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Or Psalm 79, verse 9 pleads, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Now, we're not restricted to the Psalms either in order to find such language. For Samuel 12, 22 promises, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. And Isaiah 37, verse 35 also promises, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. Or Isaiah 48, verse 9 declares, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you. And then two verses later, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. We need to allow this reality to sink in. All God's actions are done with an end in mind. God seeks to declare the honor of His name. Momentum continues to pick up as friends look to travel with us on our 2022 Israel Experience. Join us in this Holy Land adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Latha Gaines, Phil Calloway, special musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walk, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace, and experience communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last experience shared, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful, the trip of a lifetime. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate vacation experience, numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Imagine a politician who provides a benefit for her constituency, and then in a later interview, when she's asked what motivated her, she says, I did it for my own name's sake. Her leading motivation in whatever benevolent action she performed was to enhance and advance 
her reputation. And almost all of us would say, that's just scandalous. That brings us to the crux of the matter. Why is it that God claims for himself that which we condemn when we see it in anyone else? And God is not shy to say that he does all things for his glory. And here lies the answer. If God acted as if his own worth was only the same as the sum total of the human race, he would be acting unrighteously. But the worth of the Creator, who not only created all that exists, but also sustains the universe at each moment, well, that can't be compared with the things that are dependent on him. And furthermore, the attributes of God are perfect. His goodness, his righteousness, wisdom, knowledge, power, mercy, they're not only without equal. They're the very definition of these terms. We only know and understand virtue as it's reflected from his being. And for all these reasons and more, the worth of God is infinitely above the worth of all other things. And that's what it means for God to be God. See, when God evaluates his being as infinitely more valuable than all that he has made and all that he sustains, his evaluation of the worth of his being Well, that's not a subjective evaluation. God states this as objectively true. If God were to evaluate the sum total of all other things as being of equal value to himself, he'd be acting in an unethical manner. It would be disgraceful and shameful for God to act that way. So imagine a human being choosing to save the life of a malaria-carrying insect rather than the life of an infant. Wouldn't we condemn that utterly? Of course we would. We know that a child is worth so much more than an insect, but the worth of God is infinitely above the sum total of all that exists, and therefore it's righteous for God at all points in time to act with himself as the key focus of all his concerns. So holding firmly to that biblical truth, let's press forward to the next logical conclusion. God's concern for his glory leads him to a very predictable action. And we hear that in the second commandment, which forbids us from making an idol. And then it adds, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Now, if you or I prefer something to God, well, God declares he will act out of jealousy to defend the glory of his name. How unrighteous it would be for God to do anything else. That would be like preferring a malaria-infested insect over a child. How wonderful that God is jealous for his glory. And this jealousy of God not only prosecutes the guilty, it's reason for rejoicing. See, Ezekiel 39, 25 says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. And because God has made a covenant and placed his reputation on the line in keeping and maintaining that covenant, He has now in jealousy for his holy name, he says he's going to restore Israel. He would cause a national revival for holiness in the people, and he'd restore the nation. And this renewal of God's people would result in the only good thing that could come from all of this. God would ensure that his name would be glorified. And the story of Christ on the cross parallels that Old Testament story of national revival. God would never forgive sinners if he were not jealous for his righteousness. But God is greatly glorified in the cross of his son. The cross is a demonstration of just how God feels about all assaults on his glory. The cross is God's declaration to the world. That's what sin deserves. 
For there at the cross, the Son becomes the sin-bearer for the whole world. And there at the cross, seeing the sins of the world, the Father righteously pours out his wrath onto the Son. And nothing in all of history could so demonstrate how the Father deals with sin. See, for this reason, we can accurately conclude that the cross is the ultimate demonstration both of the holiness of God and God's sheer contempt for all that's unrighteous. Of course, it doesn't end there, though. Precisely because the Son went to the cross to display the glory of God, the cross also demonstrates the Father's esteem for the Son. See, in John 17, verse 5, we are told that on the cross, the Son glorifies the Father, and he does so in his perfect obedience to the Father, testifying that he's confident that the Father's plan in the cross is a good and a perfect plan. But the Father also glorifies the Son by demonstrating that on the cross, the Son remained the object of the Father's delight. And so, it's not possible to speak about heaven and hell or about the nature of God without dealing with the meaning of the cross of Jesus. The cross speaks of mercy and of wrath and of justice and of the honor of obedience to the Father, all in the same breath. Now let's go to Revelation 19, verse 5. tells us what happens when Christ returns. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And in the next chapter, Revelation 20, verse 10, we learn of the lake of fire and sulfur in which those go who are tormented day and night forever and ever. And verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. You know, some ask the question, well, isn't this a bit extreme? And some of us can understand that child killer should go there and Hitler should go there. And so too should some other dictators whose evil has caused ethnic cleansing. Hell should be for the worst of sinners. But what do we make of the ordinary sinner, you know, who gets married and raises a family and works at a job and rarely thinks about God and eventually dies? Are they also to be treated in the same way? You know, in the realm of earthly affairs or in the realm of human governments in which, you know, the rule of law and fairness pervades, we all agree that greater crimes merit greater punishments. You see, no one would want to punish a person with a parking ticket in the same way as we'd punish someone who's a murderer. Justice demands that the greater the crime, the greater the punishment. And in the same vein, the lesser the infraction of law, the lesser the punishment. Indeed, if someone doesn't pay their parking fine, we don't rise up and demand justice. But we think very differently about crimes against humanity. Well, very well. And to this, no reasonable human being will disagree. The matter in which we profoundly disagree is when we assess how great is a crime against God and against his government over the creation he has made. What do we make of the one who says that God is not God, that he's not all-glorious, And that finding our delight in God is not just a religious choice, but it is a moral imperative. In his work entitled The Eternity of Hell Torments, Jonathan Edwards wrote, If the obligation to love, honor, and obey God be infinite, then sin, which is a violation of infinite obligation, is an infinite evil. An infinite evil deserves infinite punishment. Therefore, such a punishment is just, and there's no evading the force of this reasoning but to deny that God, the sovereign of the universe, is infinitely glorious. And that's it. A crime against humanity is a lesser crime than a crime against God. That's it. 
failing to glorify that which demands worship is a crime so frighteningly evil that nothing but the full weight of God's wrath can be demanded. And for that reason, those who deny hell of necessity also deny the infinite glory of God. And that's the fundamental dividing line of all theologies. Wherever we find a person who doesn't believe that sin against God is an infinite crime that is demanding of infinite punishment, there we also find a person who has constructed an idol in the place of the living God. And furthermore, God does not think that the worship of a substitute for himself is just a personal choice. He thinks it as a monstrous evil. And those who hold that failure to worship the true God is not an infinite evil aren't thinking about the real God at all. And that leads me to a final thought. We should daily be overwhelmed by the love of God. That a God who is perfectly satisfied in himself and a God who doesn't need us and that a God who desires to glorify his name should also take delight in showing mercy to undeserving sinners that should confound and overwhelm us. We should struggle to take it in. To think of the love of God at the expense of thinking about the glory of God, that's not thinking about God at all. And to imagine that there is no hell is to imagine that there is no glorious God. And the only response must be, confess our sins, plead with God for grace, flee from wrath to come, flee to Christ. Thanks so much, John. You know, why do you think it's that so many people prefer or embrace idols rather than a glorious God? Well, I think that idols are manageable. Um, You know, they they can't save us in the day of trouble. So you think, why would anyone embrace a a, a God that can't save you? Uh, However, um, the God who actually exists you know, as you know, Scripture says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So many of us just prefer never to have to deal with infinite holiness, infinite righteousness, infinite purity. Um, so that thought uh, overwhelms us, and our own ego drives us to think of a God who's uh, like us or that we can manage the kind of God that we come up with. So Idols are always popular, even though uh, idols in the end are vanity. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Heaven and Hell, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Talk about heaven and hell has been forgotten in the present hour. For this reason, current evangelicalism sounds so very different from the kind of faith we find in the pages of the New Testament. In his preaching, Jesus depicted a roadway leading to either heaven or hell. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. These are words written by Dr. John Newfeld in his newest book, Heaven and Hell. What could be as important as understanding the truth behind the reality of heaven and hell? Choose to request this new book today as our free gift for the month of November only. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, consider offering a financial gift to support Bible teaching you can trust in important Bible teaching resources like heaven and hell.